Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. So the most important thing is to know what you want to accomplish with this bottle of wine and to have someone that you trust at your local wine shop or wine bar to steer you in the right direction. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. If you're searching for your next great bottle of wine, hit up your local wine shop. Our guest explains why the shop owner and you will be especially glad you did. So a guy walks into a wine bar. Actually, for a good chunk of 2020, no guys or gals were walking into any wine bars in Florida unless it was to pick up a to-go order for drinking at home. Today, Judith Smelser will explain why all this matters. Judith is the founder of Orlando Wine Blog and the wine columnist for Edible Orlando. She also holds a Level 2 certification from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. Last year, when the COVID-19 pandemic brought Florida's hospitality industry to a screeching halt, Judith started a podcast to chronicle the effects on Florida's wine-based businesses. It's called Unwinding. Today, she shares how wine bars got creative to survive, explains why Disney World is good for Orlando's wine scene, and offers suggestions for discovering your next favorite bottle of wine. We recorded our conversation in November 2020, but I think you'll find that it's aged well, kind of like a fine wine. I just want to establish what we're talking about. So, In a previous episode of The Zest, we talked all about Florida wines, wines that are made from fruit that grows in Florida and wines that are produced in Florida. But that's not exactly what you're talking about today. So when you refer to Florida's wine-based businesses, what exactly do you mean? (laughs) Well, and obviously, uh, Florida wineries are wine-based businesses for sure. But I think um, what a lot of people may not think about is the fact that there are hundreds, thousands of people um, working in primarily the hospitality business, but not just that, who are primarily concerned in in their careers with wine. So we're talking about sommeliers, wine directors, beverage directors, but we're also talking about people who work for distributors. So the people who sell wine to those folks that you buy wine from. We're also talking about retail shops. So the boutique wine shop on your on your local main street, um, you know, your favorite wine seller, the guy or gal that you go and, and ask for recommendations for wines to to take to that uh, special dinner party or just home to drink on a Tuesday night. Those are all folks who work in the wine industry in Florida. And, you know, our wine industry, I think, is like in most many parts of the country, is becoming um, more developed as time goes along and as more folks get interested in education um, and getting certified and through various wine certification bodies in Florida. Those are the folks that are in the wine industry that you may not think so much about, but you probably interact with them a good bit. That's true. And especially in Florida, I mean, we have so much tourism and people who come here for the 
restaurants. It's just people are kind of behind the scenes a lot of times. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, you you bring up a great point um, about the restaurants, you know, as as Florida's culinary scene and culinary community has really grown up over the past decade or so, so has the wine industry, you know, and, and as people's tastes have changed and become more sophisticated when it comes to food and dining, um, more sophisticated and might I say more adventurous, the same is true for wine. You know, you have a whole new generation of people, young people coming up who are really interested in exploring all the nooks and crannies of the wine world, getting out of the sort of standard Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne sort of classic categories. Not that there's anything wrong with those. Don't get me wrong. I'll drink a bottle of any of those any day. But when it comes to trying to explore a lot of new regions, new grapes that you might have never heard of, there's a lot more interest in that than there used to be. And that that goes for the whole country, but it certainly goes for Florida. And, you know, like with some other things, we might be lagging a little bit behind some of the more uh, cosmopolitan parts of the country. But again, as our culinary scene has expanded and become more adventurous, so has our wine scene. It's gone right along with it. That's great. Now, obviously, it took a hit like everything during the pandemic. We're slowly crawling our way out and we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But what have been the effects of the pandemic on Florida's wine-based businesses? Well, I mean, they took they took a huge hit. I started this podcast uh, unwinding back in March of 2020 when I really just saw and realized the huge impact that the pandemic was going to have on wine businesses here in Orlando and, and across the state, of course. You know, as with with everything in hospitality in, in the spring and March, everything shut down, everything. And wine businesses were in a very similar position for a while uh, to restaurants in that they were still allowed to sell wine to go. So bars could could sell bottles of wine, could sell drinks to go if they wanted to, to package it that way. Uh, and a lot of them did that. But, you know, the difference was with with the bars, they came back a lot more slowly than, than the restaurants were allowed to reopen. So, you know, a lot of bars obviously weren't big into retail and had to make that pivot. And they stayed closed for, for quite a long time. You know, you saw a lot, a lot of them getting quite creative. And we can talk a bit more about that if you want. But, um, but, you know, you really did see there for a while. It was very touch and go, especially for you know, the businesses that I tend to focus on and cover for the blog and for the podcast are are small businesses, independently owned um, local businesses here in the Orlando area. And, you know, they were they were hit hard. I mean, they they're they when people weren't going out, they were they weren't doing much of anything. Now, the flip side of that and the silver lining of that um, was that people were staying home and they were still allowed to go out and buy supplies. So on the retail side, if you, you know, if you had a wine shop that was just a retail based business, and I know, you know, several around here who really saw their business tick up quite a bit during the pandemic, because, you know, the only place people were drinking wine was at home. So they actually lost competition from restaurants, which was kind of an interesting dynamic that you might not have expected. But obviously, you know, it has been a huge hit. I think it's going to take these small businesses, especially the ones that were that are focused on on-site consumption like bars, they're going to take a while to build back up. And I think that that's something that we're going to see for a while. Obviously, you know, I, I spoke of the distributors earlier. You know, when you talk about behind the scenes, those folks are way, way behind the scenes. But 
they're crucial. They're a crucial part of the supply chain. And so many people that I know in the distribution business got laid off, furloughed. Some of them have yet to be hired back. So, you know, I, I think it's just one of those things where we had been developing this whole wine-based infrastructure, which, you know, it's holding up, but it really got strained there for a while. What are some of the unique challenges that the wine bars faced that restaurants and breweries didn't? Yeah, well, this was a, this was definitely a point of, of tension um, along in the spring and, and late summer or and, and summer as well uh, last year. You saw, um, obviously, like I said, in March, as we all remember, everything shut down for a couple of months. But at the beginning of May, restaurants were allowed to reopen with limited capacity. Bars were not. Uh, we're still we're only allowed to, to sell alcohol to go, weren't allowed to serve on site. In mid-May, around that time, suddenly we started getting this sort of word of mouth news that breweries could reopen if they had a food truck on site or some other way of serving food. And this was this sort of weird, it was communicated in a sort of weird way in that, it, it, like I said, it was kind of spread by word of mouth. You started to hear whispers throughout the, the beverage community that, oh, I heard these breweries were allowed to start opening if they had a food truck. It's interesting because one of my regular guests on the podcast on Unwinding is a guy who owns a wine bar here in Orlando, and he uh, has a food truck on site, found that, no, in fact, this only applies to breweries. And as I'm sure you can imagine, this gave rise to quite a bit of resentment. You know, not that not that they weren't all happy for their friends at the breweries, but what was the logic there? <laughs> why why were the breweries, they wondered, allowed to reopen um, and, and not a wine bar? Yeah, that's my um, question. Why is that? Yes. That is still uh, a mystery as far as I'm concerned, with the exception of the possible um, and probable factor that the Florida Brewers Guild exists. That's an organization obviously representing breweries with a decent amount of clout in Tallahassee. They employ some lobbyists and attorneys and such who apparently eked out this loophole for them. Bars don't have that kind of representation. And you know, like it or not, that's sometimes the way things roll when it comes to, to government. And it looks like that that might have been what what did the trick. Again, that's nothing official, but that's that was sort of the word on the street. As far as logic, I, I don't see it. I don't see why a, a, any other type of bar would be different. You know, the other thing that that the, the wine bar owners that I talk to a lot kind of complained about was the fact that they were lumped in with nightclubs, for example. Now, you know, if you go into any of these small wine bars that are, are here in, in the Orlando area, and I'm sure across the state, you know that it's a very different atmosphere and a very different vibe and scene than a nightclub. There aren't people shoulder to shoulder dancing with each other. It's really, in a lot of cases, more similar to a restaurant type of environment than it is to a, to a nightclub or a busy sports bar or something like that. And I think what this pandemic shutdown kind of brought to the surface for a lot of folks is that maybe maybe some of these distinctions need to be taken into consideration, need to be understood better by state regulators in the event that something like this, God forbid, has, has to happen again. So, you know, it brought some interesting things to the fore. On the other hand, you know, interestingly, as you might remember, in June, early June, very, very briefly, bars were allowed to reopen lasted for about two or three weeks. And then we saw huge spikes 
in in case numbers that were many of which were tied to bars. But again, they were tied to very different types of bars than a lot of these sort of quiet, cozy wine bars that tend to be where folks go and, and drink wine. So, you know, there were a few resentments and, and kind of inconsistencies that were brought up in the, the midst of all of this. Obviously, I will say that everyone that I spoke to for the podcast and for the blog professed and certainly demonstrated a, a lot of respect for safety and wanting to keep folks, to keep their patrons safe, to keep their staff safe. I know one wine bar owner here in this area who has a chronic condition, has lupus. And, you know, she has made some difficult business decisions based on the need to keep herself safe and also to keep her customers safe. You know, like not going back to 100% capacity when the governor allowed that to happen. Uh, A number of of wine bars here made that call to stay at 50% capacity when everything was allowed to go back to full capacity. You know, I've heard from some folks that when that announcement was made, that actually caused their business to take a hit because patrons were concerned about coming out again if everything was going to be 100% capacity. So, you know, as with every other business, as with every other facet of society, really, over these past months, you know, wine businesses have had to make some very difficult decisions, difficult calculations. And a lot of times, I think they've found themselves doing that very much on their own. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like they need to organize. Do you think that's one of the lessons to take away from this for them? You know, I don't see that happening. I don't, and this is complete conjecture on my part, but, you know, these guys are, are they're an independent bunch. They're kind of a ragtag bunch. I don't necessarily see them getting together to form a, a, a wine bar guild or a, an association of wine bars. It, it, I talk about how, the wine business is growing and it is in Florida, but I don't think there's probably critical mass of only wine bars to really have any kind of political cloud. I would be surprised if that happened, but I do think, you know, a number of folks became, I would say, better educated about the regulations and about how regulations are made and perhaps about the need to uh, better educate their elected officials locally and statewide about what their businesses do, about what they're all about, and what happens in their establishments. That may be something that comes out of this, or maybe it won't. You know, it's very possible that once all this is really truly behind them, they're going to put their heads down and get back to the business of of building their, their businesses back up, and frankly, to doing what they really love, which is selling wine, finding new wine, teaching their customers and patrons about wine. That's why they got into this, you know, not not to get rich. Nobody's going to get rich in the wine business. Very few people, let's say, are going to get rich in the wine business. They really do it out of the love of it. And I I think that when it gets down to it, they're probably going to want to get back to doing that more than becoming politically active. Right. At least the officials should come and take a field trip to learn the difference between a wine bar and a bar bar. You know what I mean? As you said, totally different vibe. (laughs) You say that kind of jokingly. But what's interesting is that while this was all going on, a number of folks from the state regulatory agency did go on field trips around the state visiting bars and breweries. Now, whether they were looking for the distinction between a wine bar and, and a different kind of bar, Probably not. My guess is, you know, they probably didn't make it to some of these little wine bars, little holes in the wall that that we all love. 
but still they, they did, they did make an effort to get out and, and see what was going on and to try and talk to these, these owners about, you know, how they could reopen and do it safely this time, as opposed to what happened in June. Well, that's good. I mean, bar hopping, that's not a bad day's work. You mentioned, <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier that some of these wine bars got creative so that they could remain open. Do you have any examples? Oh my gosh. So let's just be clear. They, they didn't get creative so that they could remain open. And I should also be clear to say that they were never forced to close. They were only forced to stop serving on site. That's really a key distinction because otherwise I think they probably would all have gone under. They were still allowed to sell to go and to sell retail. And a lot of them did turn that into some really interesting little workarounds and creative ways of continuing to engage their customer base. A lot of folks started holding wine tastings on Zoom. Like everything went to Zoom, right? Well, so did wine tastings. Really one of the coolest ones, I think, was there's a wine bar here called Swirlery, and it's owned by a woman, Melissa McAvoy, who's a level three advanced sommelier. She's studying for her master som exam right now. And she got together with another local sommelier um, who used to work for Darden Restaurants, actually. And they uh, organized a series of weekly Zoom tastings where what they did, and they, they were blind tastings. So what they did was they took six bottles of wine, broke them down into little mini, they bought these little mini glass bottles, unmarked, only marked by numbers. You would register for this for this tasting. You would get this pack of six little mini bottles of six different wines, and then you'd get on Zoom, and each week they had a different master sommelier as a guest, and the three of them would go through and blind taste the wines while you could blind taste the wines along with them at home. This was a ton of fun, for one thing, great way to pass the time during quarantine, but also it allowed many, many people in our area who were studying and are studying for various levels of, of uh, qualification to taste with master psalms, which is in the wine community, a huge deal, right? You don't really get to taste with master psalms on a regular basis. And this was allowing folks, whoever wanted to, to be able to do that on a weekly basis. And they've, they've continued that, not on a weekly basis, but they're still rolling along with it. So that was one really neat thing. It also, those, a lot of Zoom tastings allowed uh, local establishments to work with winemakers from all over the world. I mean, I attended a Zoom tasting with a winemaker from California. They've been some from farther afield than that. That's been a kind of an, a neat opportunity. And of course, it allows the, the local establishment to sell those wines. And again, to keep that business rolling in. A lot of folks started looking into food service options. Um, there was, you know, that, that period of time when restaurants were allowed to open, but bars weren't. You saw a lot of bars getting kitchen licenses. And, you know, some of them did it kind of tongue in cheek and almost to make a point of, you know, why is it safer now that you've got a basket of fries sitting in front of you? <laughs> Some crackers. <laughs> right, right. But some folks did it right. You know, some folks actually, you know, got their, got their kitchen licenses started doing small plates, which is frankly, as a frequenter of wine bars pre-pandemic, I always wished that there was something I could snack on, you know, and I think they're going to be doing better because of it. People will stay longer and I think that'll be great. You know, places started doing outdoor events and outdoor seating to a large degree. People feel even after all the restrictions were lifted, people still felt safer in a lot of cases eating and drinking outdoors. 
And so, you know, I know one place here locally redid their patio, you know, made that investment to make it nicer. Folks are more interested in alfresco dining and drinking, which frankly, I've always been mystified. I've lived in Florida for, gosh, 15 years plus. And I've always been mystified why people don't like to sit outside here because, you know, you're here for the weather, guys. I mean, come on. So I think that's a really cool thing. And, you know, the other thing that's come out of this, which is neat, which I think we've seen, obviously, in a lot of different industries and businesses, is just the general public awareness of the importance of supporting local. You know, people who I know who own wine businesses have told me that during the pandemic, they've had people specifically say, I made an extra stop here instead of getting my wine at Publix because I want to support you because I want to support local. And I think that's something that really has been a nice silver lining that hopefully, you know, we'll have some staying power. Yeah, I've been leaning into shopping local as well. Yeah. I would be remiss if I did not ask you how you got into this, because I first met you years ago through the journalism world, WUSF and the partner station in Orlando, WMFE, have a relationship. And you were you were a broadcaster, right? <laughs> yeah, so well, and, I, and, and still my day job is, is in journalism. Um, I will tell you that all of these things that we've just been talking about make me... Uh, almost no money. So this is a passion project almost <laughs> entirely. Um, yeah. So I, you're right. I was news director at WMFE um, for, for several years back a while back. Um, I also have been a news director or a ma- managing editor at the station in Colorado, um, Colorado Public Radio. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade and training and passion as well, obviously. Um, I'm now a, a consultant for public media stations. So I work with different newsrooms all around the country, which is really fun. But um, yeah, how did I get into wine? Gosh. The job um, drove you to drink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, journalism does tend to be one of those high drinking professions, but uh, that's probably a conversation for a different day. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I, you know, I think like, like most people who get into wine, I started going to tastings just very casually. And if you're going to tastings with, with good people leading them, you get sucked in, you know, there is so much about wine that is intoxicating that and that have nothing to do with alcohol. It's about history. It's about science. It's about people. There are so many different grapes that you can make wine from. You know, you go into drinking wine thinking Chardonnay, Merlot, Cabernet, Sauvignon, um, Sauvignon Blanc, you know, maybe some Riesling here and there. You don't realize how many hundreds, thousands of wine grapes there are out there. It's just a whole world of of different possibilities. And, you know, they're all grown on different soils in different parts of the world. And they taste a little bit different depending on how and where they're grown and the winemaking procedures that are used. And you start going down that rabbit hole and, and then you find out how they pair differently with different foods. And it's quite addictive. And again, having nothing to do with the alcoholic qualities of it. It's just a fascinating subject. Um, And so I started going to more and more tastings and learning more about it. Then I started going to classes. You know, that's another thing. A lot of places, uh, shops, bars, things like that will offer classes for consumers to uh, educate them about wines from different regions, bringing in wine reps from the distributors, bringing in winemakers, things like that. So I started going to those types of things, again, learning more, getting more and more interested. And 
you know, I started posting on social media about wines that I was drinking or classes that I was going to do. And I had a couple friends from from my my college days and from my journalism field who um, said, why don't you start a wine blog? Because you obviously like wine and, and you know how to write. And I resisted for a very, very long time because my feeling is, goodness knows, there are millions of wine blogs. Why on earth does the world need one more? <laughs> But there was there was one friend in particular who every time I posted about wine, she would keep up this drumbeat, wine blog, wine blog, wine blog. So finally I decided, okay, I'll give it a shot, play around with it. And I played with it for a year or so, kind of trying to figure out what what it was. And the original name for the for the blog was Here's My Wine Blog, because that was it. Like, here it is. <laughs> you for it, here it is. And then I I realized, and here's where the two things come together. My clients in public media are largely local stations, local NPR affiliates. And I'm always preaching local, the importance of shoring up your local journalism, your local storytelling, your focus on your own backyard, because that's how you're going to make your mark. And one day I thought to myself, why don't I take my own advice? Why don't I localize this? Because as I said, you know, the Orlando wine scene was really starting to blossom and there weren't that many people really writing about it or focusing on it. And so that's what I did. I converted it to Orlando Wine Blog and, you know, went all in with kind of the local focus to it. That's not to say that when I travel to wine regions, I don't write about it. Of course I do. And because people here travel to wine regions and want to want recommendations and want to know about it. But, you know, mostly I'm writing about what's going on locally, who's here and what are they dealing with? And suddenly over the past year, it's become more of a news site than I ever imagined when I got into it because suddenly this uh, sort of lifestyle hobby blog became front page news um, when the pandemic started affecting it. So yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much how it happened. And the podcast came about, I really didn't want a podcast, but uh, kind of was an idea that grabbed me by the throat. When the pandemic happened, I just felt like somebody somebody had to record this. Somebody had to record it because it was history. And interestingly, I, I donated the first season to uh, the, the Orange County Regional History Center here um, for their COVID, digital COVID project, which I think is pretty cool. So it is, it is, it's history and, uh, and I'm happy to be a part of it. It really is. It's oral history. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it is. Yeah. So thank you for that from future generations. <laughs> Hopefully they listen to it. <laughs> you know what? Let me ask you quickly about Disney, because you can't talk about the Orlando wine scene without acknowledging the massive wine collection at Disney. Have you done much looking into that? So that's absolutely right. And I think you're right. You cannot, you cannot uh, divorce the local culinary scene or wine scene here in the Orlando area from the theme parks and, and specifically Disney. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got a couple master Psalms here because of Disney who work at Disney, the parks and Disney in particular are a huge driver. I have not written that much about it. Honestly, that's been on my list of topics to write about for a really long time. And I just never got around to it um, before <laughs> the pandemic hit and, the parks closed down and all of that. Um, but yes, for example, uh, Animal Kingdom Lodge has a huge focus on African wines. South Africa is, for those of you who don't know, is actually a, a really great wine region. Um, 
they have one of the biggest collections of South African wines in the country. It's pretty remarkable. You can go there and learn a lot about Pinotage, which is a great varietal that a lot of people hate, but I think it can be done really well. It is a great um a great driver of, of the culinary and wine scene. And, you know, importantly, it's been a great training ground for people who have then gone out into the Orlando community and opened up their own businesses or, you know, brought their expertise that they've gained working at Disney to local independent businesses elsewhere in the community. You know, when I first moved to Orlando in 2004, my husband and I used to go to Disney to eat all the time. Because really, there weren't that many good restaurants outside of the Disney bubble. That has changed so much since then. But a lot of it started there. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if the pace at which Disney and the theme parks come back has something to do with what happens here locally with independent food and wine businesses. We'll just have to see. Yeah, we'll have to see. Well, thank you for that. I didn't want to make you Disney explain everything, but um, you're no, so but good at it. Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. so good at it. Uh, thank you for that. It sounds like the biggest thing we can do is to shop local. You've sure. emphasized local, local, local. So when we go to our local wine bar, what should we order? What can you recommend to lift our spirits in the new year? <laughs> well, gosh, that is a question that is so personal. And that is actually a great reason to shop local and to go and patronize your local wine store, wine bar, etc. because there's no substitute for a knowledgeable purveyor, right? There's no substitute for somebody who you can trust to go, you know, to tell you and to steer you in the right direction. So, you know, the answer to that question depends on so many things. What's the occasion? What do you want to get out of the experience of drinking this bottle of wine? You know, are you taking it to a fancy dinner party? Are you drinking it on the porch while you watch the world go by? Are you drinking it at a barbecue or a birthday party? Is wine the center of attention for your event? Or is it something that you want to be sort of a a nice, pleasant background noise, you know? And that's not a bad thing. Wine is meant to be an accompaniment to food and conviviality and joyous occasions, whether that's by yourself or with friends, you know. So the most important thing is to know what you want to accomplish with this bottle of wine and to have someone that you trust at your local wine shop or wine bar to steer you in the right direction. Wine recommendations, what's going to lift your spirits, that's different for every person. Actually, my column in the latest Edible Orlando is there theme for the issue is comfort. So I I did a lot of thinking about what is comfort? What's a comfort wine, like a comfort food, you know? And a a lot of times that's synonymous with what's familiar. You know, you want the comfort food is the food of your childhood, right? But I mean, most of us didn't drink wine in our childhood. Um, Speak for yourself. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I mean, in France they do, so. That's true. That's true. No judgment, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, But I would actually urge the opposite, really, when it comes to wine. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit and try and find some things that might surprise and delight you. You know, if you love California cabs, think about trying maybe a a Rioja from Spain. You know, it's going to give you that same kind of big, bold flavor and and style and body, but it's going to be very different in flavor profile because of where it's grown and the type of grape it is. If you love Pinot Noir, let's say, try a Cru Beaujolais. And I don't mean Beaujolais Nouveau. 
because that's gotten a very bad name in the wine world. Not not that if you love it, drink that, that's fine. But try a Cru Beaujolais um, that, you know, from the Gamay grape, it's just as light bodied, it's beautiful, but it's a little different and it's going to stretch you a little bit. If you love Chardonnay and if you like, let's say you like Burgundy, white Burgundy, New Zealand is making some really great Chardonnays these days that you can get at a fraction of the price of a white Burgundy. But again, all of these things are things that I've discovered because I talk to my local wine cellar at my local wine shop that I go to all the time that I trust. And I trust that when I go in there, they're not going to rip me off. They know my palate. They know what I've been buying for the past Oh, five, 10 years. They know what I'm, what I'm going to want when I come in the door. Hey, remember that thing you liked last, last time you were in? Well, we've got something over here that's a little different, but it's kind of similar. And I want you to try it. And I will absolutely take their recommendation. But you know, it takes time to build those types of relationships. You know, it takes time to, to trust that, hey, I love champagne, but I don't want to spend 70 bucks on a bottle of champagne every time I want some sparkling wine. So what should I have that's really great? Look for a Cremant de Bourgogne. Look for a Method Cap Classique sparkling from South Africa. But you've got to have those those relationships in order to get, you know, get educated and maybe strike out a little bit and find a new set of favorites. Find a new set of favorites every time you go in. I mean, to me, the joy of wine is is in the adventure and is in the journey and the discovery. And that's really what it's all about. That's that's what lifts my spirits when it comes to wine. Now, if you want to drink the same thing that you've been drinking for the past five years, you know what? I mean, we've been through a heck of a year and you can drink whatever you like and whatever you brings you comfort. But I just say that for me personally, the more adventure that I can find in wine, the better. That's great. And when you spoke about being on a first name basis with the people at your local wine bar and and them recommending things to you, I think that's where the comfort comes in because now they're like family. So no matter what you're drinking, no matter what they're recommending, you still get that comfort because you have those relationships. That's great. Well, Judith, this was so much fun. And is there anything else we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention? Well, I mean, I guess I would just say that, you know, just to temper that a little bit, it is so important, of course, to continue to stay safe. You know, one of the hardest things through the pandemic, because just as you said, you know, for me, the folks at the local wine bar, they are like family to me. And having not not being able to go in and sit at the bar and chat with them about their new favorite wine discovery has been really difficult. And so, you know, I think to the extent that it's safe to do that, that's great. Um, to the extent that maybe we need to wait a little bit longer, I think that's important to acknowledge and and respect as well. You know, um, they're all still going to sell your retail bottles, so you can still go in there and be on a first name basis. You might just want to take it home if that's what the situation calls for. Yeah, put on some comforting sweatpants and you got the best Judith of both worlds. <laughs> well, Judith, thank wine you so much for your expertise. I'm ready to unwinding. Uh, try something she new. She also writes about Crack wine open for a Edible bottle of something Orlando, fun. where you can read her column on comfort wine in the current issue. We have a link to it on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm Delia Cologne. I produce The Zest with help from Cheyenne Jaglau and Mark Hayes. Copyright 2021, WUSF Public Media. Cheers. Cheers.